The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian and pastor, stood before a congregation in Enfield, England, on July 8, 1741, and preached what has historically become known as sinners in the hands of an angry God. This was Jonathan Edwards' statement of utter frustration with the Christians of his day. Jonathan Edwards' grandpa pastored the church that he eventually came to pastor. And because his grandpa was concerned with church growth and with finance, his grandpa decided to allow into the church those who were half-converted. What do I mean by half-converted? I mean, these were the people who said, yes, we're Christians. We want to enjoy the benefits of baptism and marriage, the sacraments of the church. But are we utterly sold out to Jesus and walking without sin? No. And we don't think we should have to. We should simply be able to confess that Jesus is Lord, and that means we should have access to the benefits of the church. And so the church was overrun with the half-converted. When Jonathan Edwards took over the church, it was a point of great pain in his heart, that there was no clear delineation between those who were truly sold out to Jesus and those who simply wanted the benefits that accrued to them through church membership, the social benefits, the community standing benefits, the pleasures, and then, of course, the weddings and the baptisms and the funerals where the pastor would bless the ungodly and say, you're okay, you're saved. You confess Jesus as your Lord. This absolutely broke Jonathan Edwards' heart. And he began spending more and more time in his prayer closet in his study. Finally, he was spending 16 to 18 hours every day reading the scriptures, and crying out to God for revival. His members were very upset with him because he was not out glad-handing people and building up the church through the social networks made available to him through the high standing of their church in the community. He was not visiting people in their homes, He was simply on his face before God, crying out to the Lord. He preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in his home church, and there was basically no response. It was just a yawn. And then, 
on July 8, 1741. He preached this red-hot summer sermon, and the power of God fell. He preached it to Christian people, not pagans. But they were only half converted. And this sermon broke their hearts with conviction of their true condition before a holy God. Let me read just a few lines from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. My telephone does interesting things at just the wrong time as I try to bring up sinners in the hands of an angry God. Okay, I think we are getting it now. In his sermon, after a very brief intro, he said, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his ability, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of the wicked at that moment. Now he writes, The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands can't be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hand. He's not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel that has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it's not so with God. There's no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand, and vast multitudes of God's enemies combined and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before a devouring flame. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth. So tis easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus easy is it for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down? They deserve to be cast into hell, 
so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down. Why cumbereth the ground? The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over the head, and tis nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mercy will that holds it back. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They don't only justly deserve to be cast down thither, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind, is gone out against them. I could read much more. But I want to speak about this briefly with you today. The great struggle of Jonathan Edwards' heart was that the people he was preaching to believed they were saved. They believed they were okay in the midst of their sin. They thought that they could have a normal worldly life and they could at the same time serve Jesus. They thought they could enjoy the delicacies of Sodom and Gomorrah. They thought they could enjoy the professional sports. They thought they could enjoy the television, the movies the pornography. They thought they could enjoy their own life and have Jesus too. Jonathan Edwards, in his day, of course, they did not have television. But they had parties. They had game nights. They had drinking bouts. They had concerts. And these were looked down upon by Jonathan Edwards. He did not believe that entertainment had any place in the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the lateness of the hour. He did not believe in fun. Are you aware that nowhere in Scripture is the word fun used? Fun is usually associated with debilitating things. He did believe in recreation. He believed in innocent recreation that built up the reserves of the body and of the mind that gave you exercise, that that brought the health of God into your body and into your mind. But he had no time for the foolishness of cards and gambling. He had no time for worldly pleasures. And yet his church was filled, and other churches were filled with people 
who loved the banquet and the dance, who loved the card games, who loved all of the debilitating things that in that culture, in that day, were very popular. Today, he would probably be astonished by Pokemon Go. He would be astonished by the wickedness of the video games, the books and the magazines. He would be astonished by the American lust after everything to do with sports. He would be absolutely heartbroken at mom and dad who are willing to pay great money to enroll their sons and daughters in all of the baseball, the the leagues, drive them all over the country to compete, teaching their children to be worldly and not righteous. Well, people were very offended by all of this. They didn't like Jonathan Edwards. And that's why he was finally fired by his church. And he went from that church, this great theologian, this great scholar, went from this church to a humble place where he taught and tutored Native American children from the Bible. And it was there in that humble place that he was approached by the board of Princeton University and was called to be the president of this institution of higher learning. Of course, it was a very different Princeton University than we know today. It was not a center, a hotbed of utter wickedness. It was a place of righteousness where young men and young women were trained for the work of the gospel. Now, I must tell you, the greatest frustration of my heart as a pastor, and I've now been a pastor for almost 45 years in Washington, D.C. And the greatest frustration of my heart has been the half-converted Christian. Most of our churches are filled with pagans who are spray-painted on the outside with Jesus. But in their inner hearts, they desire all the things of the world. And if you were to look at how they spent their time, their money, their energy, it would be no different, basically, than any other American pagan. Now, some have a hobby called church, so they're always in church because that's where they have their social center. Not because they're sold out to Jesus, but because that's where they have their entertainment. It gives them a sense of well-being. Well, I speak with people who have at the center of their life kayaking, and they get the same spiritual deal, and, and they say to me, what's the difference, Pastor, whether I'm sitting in church and enjoying all of the benefits of the concert and the dance, or whether I'm sitting in a kayak out on the river enjoying the solitude. Both people are enjoying their spiritual life. That's true. 
Some people say to me, Pastor, I, I'd rather be hiking in the Shenandoah than sitting in church because I have a sense of the spiritual while I'm hiking in the woods. Others find the same high in bowling matches and and clubs. Others find it in their health club where they go and work out and the endorphins are released and they have a sense of spiritual high. None of this has anything to do with Jesus Christ, including the church. Everybody seems to have their hobbies of the day. So whether your hobby is the church or whether your hobby is kayaking or whether your hobby is all-out biking or camping, they're all hobbies. And you can argue the merits of the hobby. Certainly some hobbies give you more health benefits than other hobbies, and, and certainly you can have very fine associations with other people who enjoy the same hobbies. But it's not about Jesus. It's not about the body of Christ. It's about what they prefer. So when we come to the book of Hebrews, we come to the 11th chapter. We find men and women who heard a rhema word from God regarding what they were to do, emphasis on do, what they were to do in their lives. Now, let's recognize, please, we only have one life. So you don't have a life to spend on kayaking and a life to spend on Jesus. You don't have a life to spend pursuing money and a life to pursue Jesus. No, you have just one life. And it's every man lives that life and then he faces the judgment and then God will determine whether he's going to cast you into the fire of hell or whether he's going to give you entrance, as Bunyan says in Pilgrim's Progress, into the celestial city. And if you remember the book Pilgrim's Progress, right at the place of the celestial city, there is an entrance into hell. And some who made the journey all that distance were cast into hell. They had pursued all of their life the hobby of their choice, but they'd never surrendered. They'd never gone through the narrow gate. They were very religious, but they wanted their own way. They were half converted. And the half-converted cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so you find in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, now faith is the assurance. And the word assurance, literally meaning stay under 
the piercing or stay under the rhema word that God has spoken to you and giving you direction to surrender your life to him. And so then he begins, and he talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. He talks about Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. He talks about Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. He speaks about all of these people who heard a rhema word from God, and then based on that rhema word from God, they acted in accordance with that word, and it totally changed their whole life. Now, there is nothing uglier in the world than a man or a woman who says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And then they go out of the church and strike each other with wicked blows. They're Christians in the church house, but in the home house, they're striking each other with wicked blows. It's ugly. Belittling. Shameful. Corrupt. Or the man leaves the church house and goes to business and cheats somebody. Or he leaves the church house and he goes home and he gets drunk on alcohol. It's ugly. It means they're half converted. They know how to deal with the culture of the church, but they're unwilling to surrender their hearts. They're determined to have their own way. Not the way of the cross. The majesty of this 11th chapter of Hebrews is each of these men and women heard the word of God and then stayed under that word. Abraham, look at his whole life. He stayed under the word. Look at Moses, 40 years in the wilderness shepherding sheep that did not belong to him with a sweet, sweet spirit. Before God finally came and said, okay, enough time in this desert. Now you're ready to go. I've stripped you of all of your ability. I've caused you to forget all of your strategies for success. Now I'm ready to to use you. And he was used to deliver God's people. But God's people, the children of Israel, refused to come under the assignment of God for their lives. God wanted to use them in a magnificent way to establish his kingdom on the earth in a theocracy. And all they could think about was, we don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. We don't have enough of this or that. Or we don't like this. And they complained and moaned and groaned and said, we should have gone back to Egypt to our slavery.
Look, isn't there a simple place in your heart where you're finally ready to admit if you're half converted? Where you're finally willing to say, enough with the pretend, enough with the games, enough with the lifestyle of the world, enough with focusing on getting the money and getting the prestige and getting what I want. Isn't there a place where we finally come to where we say, I don't need the world's attention anymore. I want the attention of Jesus Christ. Isn't there a place where we finally can just stop and finally get honest about our true condition before God and recognize that if we continue down the road of being half converted, we're going to be cast into the fires of hell? Can't we finally get honest and stop pretending and admit our true heart condition before a holy God? This God has the power to cast you into hell, and he will not be slow about doing that. It is simply arbitrary mercy that you are still alive. And if in the life you have, you continually search after the lust of your heart and the lust of your flesh, if you continue to treat others with disrespect and bitterness and anger, isn't there some place, husband, where you simply say, look, I'm going to just love my wife. And isn't there a place somewhere for the wife to finally say, Jesus stands between us and I'm simply going to love you, honey. You can act any way you want to act. You can curse me. You can do whatever you want. All I'm going to do is love you. I'm not going to bite you anymore. Isn't there some place where we can finally get honest with each other? Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? A people who have come together in the name of Jesus Christ, who have laid aside all of the games, who are just there to confess their love and their fidelity and their loyalty to Jesus Christ. They don't need the pastor's attention. They don't need anybody's attention except Jesus. And they're there to love and serve and build up the body of Christ. Isn't there some place where we can come to that in Jesus Christ and give up the war and the games and the following of Satan? Can we finally just get honest with one another? Now it's in this, in the 12th chapter, that the writer of the book of Hebrews finally says this. Therefore, what's the therefore to? Well, let's go back, verse 40. It's referring to all of these witnesses. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. 
In other words, all of these Old Testament people who now stand as witnesses were made perfect in the death of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, look, let's be made perfect with Jesus, with all of these witnesses that are around us. Let's lay everything aside. Let's be made perfect. Let's give up the pursuit of the devil, of the flesh, and of the world. And let's serve Jesus. Therefore, because we're going to be made perfect in Jesus, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. That word hinder in the Greek is very interesting. It means whatever you have your arms wrapped around. Whatever you're holding on to, it means throw it off. Don't cling to anything in your arms except Jesus Christ. Don't cling to your wife. Don't cling to your husband. Don't cling to your children. Oh, but we've got to know what to expect and we've got to have rules to guide us. You already have one rule. Die. (laughs) Be resurrected in Jesus Christ. That's the rule of marriage. Serve one another in love, humility, kindness, mercy. Can't tell you how many times people used to say to Jan and to me, when we saw you the first time, we were blinded by the presence of Jesus that rested upon you too. Can I tell you why the glory of Jesus rested upon us? It's because we had no demands for each other. It's because Jesus Christ himself stood between us. It's because he had disciplined us to such a point that our only desire was to please Jesus. There was no room for bitterness. There was no room for argumentation. There was no room for self-justification or self-defense. It was all about Jesus. And the glory of God shone forth. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Look, look at what's in your arms. It may be your reputation. It may be your womanhood or your manhood. It may be your job. It may be your hobbies. It may be any number of things. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, drop it. Throw it away. Don't let anything remain in your arms. And then he says, and the sin that so easily entangles. That word entangle literally means to stand around in a well-placed wall that you have to break through. 
In other words, you know and I know that you have favorite sins. You have places you like to go to comfort your heart when you don't get your way. Your favorite sin. For some of you, that's vegging out with entertainment. For some of you, it's pornography. For some of you, it's rage and anger. Wherever you go to recapture your sense of being in charge, of being of value, he's saying, throw it off, break through. And then he says, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. In other words, let's hear the rhema word that God has spoken to our hearts and let's not walk toward what he wants us to do. Let's run toward what Jesus has called us to do. Let's run toward being a faithful Christian. Let's run toward Jesus. But you can't run to Jesus when your arms are loaded down and full of your own desires, of your own ambitions, of your own needs. But pastor, I have needs. There are issues and I have to solve them. Really? Throw them away? They'll do nothing but keep you from Jesus? But pastor, I've got issues. Well, so does the devil. But all of those issues disappear in the brilliant light of Jesus Christ. So will you go to Jesus? Somebody this last week said to me, but pastor, I'm so mad. Their face was red. Their their hands were clenched. I said, yeah, you're mad. Now, that's the fodder you need in the prayer closet. Go and tell Jesus how mad you are. And then ask him if he would mind taking your anger, that you're going to give it to him and you're going to walk out of the prayer closet and you're not mad anymore. So you yell and scream and shout and and hit all you want in the prayer closet. But when you come out, don't come out until the spirit of Jesus fills your heart and the accusations of your heart have been removed. And your heart is at peace with Jesus because he now has broken that power and you threw away your arm load of bitterness and judgment and accusation. Throw it away. It doesn't profit you anything except entrance into hell. It's the key to get into hell. Did you know that? Anger, bitterness, accusation. That's the key to get into hell. Not heaven judgments. These are the keys of the devil, not of Jesus. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Those are the keys of heaven. So don't leave the prayer closet, regardless of how many hours it takes. 
until you have allowed Jesus to give you the power to just throw all of that garbage away. You know, I'm so happy that that I'm able to take all of my garbage, put it in big black bags, and take it out and put it in my trash bin. And I walk that trash bin down to the street, and I leave it there. And the next the next morning, I go out, and I find my trash bin is empty. It's all gone. The stench from the rotting food that had to be thrown away. The stench of the diapers from people who visited me and left their offerings behind. Did you know people always want to leave their stinky diapers with you? Don't keep them. Put them in the garbage can and wheel it out to the street. Let Jesus collect it and throw it all away. Today, I could take you out to my garage. I could open the lid to my big garbage bin. Guess what? It's empty and it smells sweet. That's what our hearts have to be. Empty of all of this wickedness of being half converted. Sold out to Jesus. Now, pardon me if I'm being so practical that I'm stepping on your toes. I mean to. I want you to follow Jesus and be totally converted. I'm sick to my half-converted people who say they're Christians while they wheel around behind them the stench of their pride and the stench of their independence and the stench of their rights and their justification. makes me sick. It makes me want to vomit. They wheel that stuff into the church, and you know what the church smells like then, like a garbage can. That's the aroma that rises to God from most churches. Garbage can. Because the people who've come in are not washed and clean. There needs to be a very clear delineation between those who are totally given to Jesus and those who are pulling their garbage bins behind them. Now, you're welcome to come to church and pull your garbage bin, but believe me, there's going to be a difference between the sweet-smelling saint who's sold out to Jesus, and they're going to talk to you about your garbage can. And they're going to suggest some ways you can empty it out. So literally, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, look, everything that's in your arms, just cast it out, cast it down. And that sin that has marshaled itself around you that says, I got you. You're going to get drunk tonight. You're going to sin against God tonight. And and it doesn't really matter because you're saved and he's going to forgive you. Those sins have to be broken through and cast out by the blood of Jesus. He says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Isn't it interesting that it does not say, let us fix our eyes on our wife or on our husband? 
because our wife or our husband or our friend or our boss is not the author of perfection in our life. Jesus is. Now, let me read this verse. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Please, I'm not speaking a Pollyanna message to you. When you decide to cast off everything you're holding in your arms, you're going to be called irresponsible. You're going to be called names by people who demand that you carry their demands in your arms. There are people who are going to demand that you meet their expectations and do what you are supposed to do because they're your boss. And when you don't do it, they're going to scorn you and they're going to try to shame you. Just It goes with the territory. Is that all right with you? Are you willing to just put your eyes on Jesus and not look at those people who would shame you or curse you or cut you off because you belong to Jesus? This walk with Jesus is not a cakewalk. It is a life of persecution. Oh, now, if you're half converted, there's no persecution. You can bend with the wind. You can compromise every direction you want to compromise. You can do what you want. You can give your expectations. You can make your demands. You can live like the world. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to run after him. You're going to have to persevere. Because there's a race marked out. And if you want to win the prize of heaven, you're going to have to you're going to have to go all the way through. One of the greatest problems we face with half converted people, and I've dealt with them for years, they give me heartburn. They have their pride. Especially men. They have their pride. They have their judgments. They know. Don't try to tell them they don't know. They know. And they know what's true and what's false. Because they said so. And they actually believe the foolishness that they think they know. May I tell you something about Ray Greenley? I only know one thing. Jesus. I'm nobody. I'm not smart. I don't have standing. I'm not famous. I just know Jesus. And he's put a sweet spirit in my heart that wasn't there before. And he took everything out of my arms. I cast it away. I cast my sorrow away. I cast my disappointments away. I cast my expectations away. 
I cast my demands away. I'm left with nothing but this sweet Jesus Christ. And can I tell you something? I found him to be more than enough. I found Jesus Christ to be more than enough. My eyes are on him. Jesus went through all that he went through on the cross because there was joy set before him. He scorned the shame of the cross, of being stripped naked, of having nothing, of being nobody, of being a loser, of being called an illegitimate child. He went through all of that because he could see ahead a throne upon which his father sat. And there was room on that throne for him also. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can I tell you something? The throne of God expands. And there's room enough for you to sit on that throne beside Jesus Christ. But if you're going to sit on that throne, you're going to have to be fully converted. The games have to stop. You have to be willing to suffer because it's only in suffering that we grow and mature. You have to be willing to endure the attacks of other people. You have to be willing to endure the scorn of others. And they will scorn you. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The word weary in the Greek literally means to relax. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow relaxed. Because the moment you grow relaxed, your arms will be filled once more with expectations and demands and Satan will come and have his way with you. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow relaxed and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But pastor, he said such horrible things to me. Pastor, she said such horrible things to me. So what? You don't have to pick them up. When I was just a a young boy, my daddy, always helping out, went 
over to our church school that had a flat roof and we were going to put a coat of tar on it. So daddy asked if I would come and help and I of course said, yes, I want to go. So I went and changed and put on a good pair of jeans and a nice shirt. Came down to meet my daddy and he said, no, Ray. No, go put on the torn jeans and an old shirt because you're going to get tar on you. He said, no, daddy, I'm not going to get tar on me. I'll stay clean. He said, no, go change. Well, it wasn't long as I was helping my daddy tar that roof until I got the first smudge of tar on my pants. And my dad just looked at me and laughed. He said, how would you feel, Ray, if you had to go to school with that tar on your nice pants? I want to tell you, if you stop struggling to keep your arms clear of the tar, you're going to get it all over you. The accusations that come flying, the expectations that come at you, the the demands that come at you, the judgments that come at you, if you collect these hurts, you will have a bag full of hurts that will stick all over you like tar. And they're very hard to get rid of. It's hard to clean tar off a good pair of pants. The Lord said, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, Work to the point of shedding your blood to not pick up everybody else's dirty diaper. Let it belong to them. Don't make any accusations. Don't make any charges against them. Just keep your eyes on me, but don't pick up this garbage. It'll only tar you up. Or should I say, tear you up. Have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes or he flogs or he scourges everyone he accepts as a son or a daughter. You know when he gets out the whip? When you've collected all of the tar that everybody's throwing at you. And you're moaning and groaning and complaining. Now, please understand me today. We have just a few minutes left in this broadcast. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I want you to let Jesus be enough for you. Don't pick up the world, the flesh, or the devil. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Are you willing to deal with this issue of being half converted? Will you be honest with yourself and with Jesus about this? You notice I didn't ask you to call in today because I didn't think anybody would call about being half converted. It's not something we're proud of. That should tell us something. 
Well, I'd like to invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel. Some of you have heard a rhema word that you're supposed to go, but you've been delaying and you've been making excuses and you've been caterwalding. That's a good old word, isn't it? You can find the National Prayer Chapel on Sunday at 12 noon. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let me give you the address. It's the All Saints Anglican Church at 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. We're located right beside the Hilton Memorial Event Center. It's a just sitting right beside it. It's a large, white, new church. Drive around to the back side of the parking lot, and there you'll see a large, white sign that says Lower Lobby. Come into that Lower Lobby, and you'll find the National Prayer Chapel Worship Center on your left-hand side. Now, my brother, my sister, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. I'm praying for you. Last night at our prayer time, our whole fellowship prayed for you. That you will not be half converted. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of his glory